Welcome to From Fear to Fire, Secrets to Overcome Fear, Embrace Your Gifts, and Achieve Success. This is the place where real people share real challenges, where you can find a common bond and uncommon wisdom through their journeys to help you move from fear to fire. I am Heather Hansen O'Neill. I am your host. And today's quote is by Ray Smith, and it is, adversity shakes the foundation of our character to see if what we believe and value is really worth standing for. I like that quote today, and I especially like and respect our guest. I am so excited to bring him to you. He's amazing. Jeff Welger is a respected and motivating professional with more than 20 years of experience in corporate meetings and events. Jeff's experience spans varied industry sectors, including biopharma, medical marketing and communications, finance, insurance, and leisure travel. He's a high-performing strategic thinker, skilled at relationship building and being a brand ambassador with exceptional presentation and interpersonal communication skills. But growing up as a child of pioneering Paralympic athletes, Jeff was exposed to and involved with wheelchair sports from an early age. That experience and as a tribute to his parents, Jeff helped to establish the Krista and Saul Welger Foundation, a 501c3 organization dedicated to help motivate and support disabled young athletes to reach their highest potential in sport and in life. And I am so excited to bring him to you here today. Welcome, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. It's, I'm, I'm almost so humbled by that introduction. Um, <laughs> it sounds like I've done so much in my life, and, and yet have. I don't see it that way. <laughs> no, so you I'm, definitely have. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And it's going to be the pleasure of our listeners momentarily here. So, you know, I have had uh, my experience with you came about from a professional side recently. You know, I became aware of your skills, your professionalism, your expertise in meeting and events arena when we recently did this panel, um, which was fantastic. And maybe I'll put a link in the show notes as well. But then afterward, I learned of your inspiring parents. So I want to start with that. I need to ask how you think that that defined you. That is a great question. What's so interesting is I didn't necessarily think it defined me until much later in life, if anything, more recently in life. And believe it or not, a, a sad time after both had passed. And, and to growing up with, with people that have disabilities, as well as my parents who were very fortunate to have such athletic ability yet be disabled, um, it was just who they were. Like many people might say, they were just mom and dad. And yeah, there were some nuances to things we could or could not do. Or, you know, walking down the street with mom would take longer than the average person or things of that sort. Going through an airport might be a little more challenging. But that's just, you know, some of the nuances of my mom and dad. So there was, it was never highlighted, the differences. So I never saw it as necessarily something that did influence me. I knew it did in the background. But I never really paid attention to that. It was, yep, they influenced me like any parents would influence a child. Um, and, and, and my life moved on. When they passed and the family decided to start the foundation, it really had us looking at, like you're asking now, the proper influence it had. 
And that's when there was a, a bunch of aha moments for my sister and I. We really had to think of what we wanted the foundation to be, and all of it had to represent what my parents represented best. And that's where the aha moment came. Mm. We did appreciate how they influence us. We really reflected on why are we the type of people we are today, the motivation we have, the dedication, the drive. And we realized it did come from them and it came from them actively and passively. You know, knowing the background they had where they were uh, Paralympians, they had to overcome obstacles and it made more sense why our parents never let us quit. Mm -hmm. Our parents would not let us use the word no in the house. It, It would be more, okay, so that's a challenge, but what are we going to do to overcome it? It was, we were not allowed to say, I can't do it. My mother would say often, whether from schoolwork or outside activities I was involved with, she would say, there's no N words in this house. No, can't, won't, don't, you're not allowed to use them. So now repeat the question or repeat the statement without it and tell me how we're going to address it. So like I said, it's, it's what is the expression? I think uh, education is wasted on the young or knowledge is wasted on the young, I can, I almost feel like that applied to me. I didn't realize the influence until I'm, a, you know, in the past two years. You know, what's interesting about that though, Jeff, is that it seeped into you, obviously, and, and it's made you who you are, even if you didn't realize it was happening. And mm. just like the same thing applies, whether it's a positive influence or a negative influence around us, sometimes it seeps into us without our being consciously aware of it, which is kind of what I talk about in my TED Talk. But for you, thank goodness, these were amazing life lessons you know, we all need to know, I mean, now more than ever, right, we need to know how to shift our focus, not to the challenge, but to what we can do about it, how we can solve it, who might be able to help us, how can we serve others. And that is, in my mind, quite an amazing gift. I'd like to learn more about your parents and kind of what it was like for them growing up and getting involved with Paralympics. And, you know, how did they meet any of those fun stories that you know about? Sure, sure. So they do have a unique story. My mom was born and raised in Berlin. Um, She is a child of World War II, meaning she was born in 1939. So right at the beginning of the war and lived her early years at the, you know, in wartime in Berlin. Um, Luckily for her, it, she ended up evolving into West Berlin, not the communist side at the time. Um, But they met, both my parents had disabilities at a very young age. My dad uh, contracted polio when he was an infant. My mom contracted polio uh, somewhere between two and three years old. Um, And they were both the type of personalities that, again, learning after the fact, was they wanted nothing to prevent them from living what they would call a normal life. No one knows what normal is anymore, but they had this drive to say, I don't care if I have a disability, I still want to do certain things. My dad was just an avid sports guy. He loved his typical, uh, he was born in New York City, typical sort of the baseball and the basketball, football things, you know, the very uh, traditional sports. And he didn't want to be told he couldn't do it because he had a disability. So he would go and do it. And, And when he was challenged, he would just, you know, persevere even more. Equally, my mother was the same way. So it it doesn't shock me looking forward why they might relate to each other when they finally did meet. But she was the same way. She would never want to hear the words, you can't do that because of X. You can't do that because you're disabled. 
So she was an avid swimmer. She, she appreciates swimming as the first key sport she played because of the, um, in the water, your disability is completely diminished in, in many times. She had full use of her upper body. So to her swimming is like, she's weightless. She could swim just as fast as someone who's able-bodied because it's, it's a lot of it is about arms. Um, although obviously legs are involved, but that didn't affect her as much. So she went the swimming route dad went the basketball route and their, their uh, aptitude for the sports was acknowledged by their respective communities. Dad in the US, mom in Germany, and they were sought out and recognized in sort of started at the community level, then it got to the regional level, and then it got to the national level. And they began participating in the international games, which is a precursor to the Paralympics in the late 50s. And they met each of them represented their country at an international games in England called the Stoke Mandeville games, which are the precursor to the actual Paralympics. So in essence, where the Stoke Mandeville games were going on for a number of years, the Stoke Mandeville games technically became the first Paralympics in 1960. Mm -hmm. However, they met earlier in 1958 at one of those international games in England and they just befriended each other one day, you know, their tents were near each other. It was the summertime and they, all the countries had their tents where you could hang out for food and you can, you know, fix your equipment if need be, or just talk with friends. And my mom at the time thought, oh, I think I want to meet some Americans. And she kind of just sauntered her way over in her wheelchair to the American tent and they started chatting and that was it. And they befriended each other. And then they saw each other. So they, they became friends. I want to say almost like pen pals. They go back to their respective countries. They stay in touch via uh, writing. And then they meet again in 1959 at the next year's games. Those games were every year. They were all again in England, the same location. And they met there again. So they furthered the friendship. They sort of became a little bit closer. And they finally sort of solidified their uh, friendship or relationship the following year in 1960, which ended up becoming the first Paralympics. It was not called that when it was happening. It's actually a historical change of uh, information. It became known as the first Paralympics after the fact. Um, they met there and they had become such close friends that they sort of began dating. And that's how they met. And my dad worked for an airline at the time. Um, and so he did have some flexibility to travel a little more easily than the average person could. So he would be able to, see, he would go over to Berlin about three, four, five times a year to visit mom in between pen palling and, and things like that. And that's how they met. And mom, they, mom stayed in Germany until there was an engagement and then a marriage in 1962. Uh, and then she came in, came and lived to the, in the States with my dad. Oh, that's a great story. I love that. You know, I always love people connect to the stories and you have so many incredible stories. You know, I know that when we've spoken before, when we started, when I started to learn a little bit about what you've done with the foundation to honor your parents and to help young athletes, I was just blown away. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, para sports in general and what it does to help young athletes who have disabilities? Absolutely. I mean, the, the great news is youngsters these days, because of internet, have so much more exposure than they ever did. When I think of my parents and even, you know, as I was a child and I was exposed to those sports when I was in my single digit years and in my teen years, it was a word of mouth 
uh, experience. So if there was a youngster that might be born with a disability or come upon a disability for whatever reason, they didn't necessarily all know that there was this option to not be just stuck in your wheelchair, your life has permanently changed forever, and you're going to be living a very different life. There, was, there wasn't this exposure, often through, and one of the key areas that helped in this cause in the 1970s and 80s were the hospital systems. So doctors becoming themselves educated, as a, whether it's a form of rehab or treatment, they would open the eyes of these youngsters and young adults and adults as well, that there were some of these options. So they were really the conduit, meaning hospitals and the doctors were the first line of defense because there was not very much news or publicity about parasports. And at the time, simply called disabled sports, now really called adaptive sports or parasports. Um, But now what's great for youngsters is the internet and Mm. research and Google. So if they find themselves in a situation, they can very easily often find someone like themselves and form a group or learn more about options in front of them. So what we want to do, although that is all there, we also want to help the youngsters that may not know about that. So first of all, help them know that just because you may now be in a wheelchair or have a different level of ailment, you know, a, a, a amputation or something of the like, there's a lot of options out there for you. And our foundation wants to help put those individuals in touch with those, found, with those options and help support if they if the individual chooses to proceed, help support their participation in that option, mm. help guide them. You know, what we heard, we, we speak to colleague foundations in the space, and there's a lot of them, which is a wonderful thing. You know, and we heard one of the biggest gaps was, it's interesting, they said, there's a tremendous um, acknowledgement of when you reach the, the higher level of, of uh, athletic ability, like the Paralympics, you get tons of support. It's like an, uh, you know, an Olympic athlete. Right. You're known about, you've made the news, people are calling you to provide support. Then there's the front end. When you first get a disability, there's a way to sort of uh, gain traction where, like I said, through doctors and social groups, you're, you're made aware of these organizations that can help you in your more recently uh, happenstance of what it is. Where the gap is the middle. Mm. And by the middle being saying someone who has a disability for a number of years, but may or may not know of the options to them or have the financial or ability or other, you know, travel ability to be in touch with those organizations. And they said the middle gap is where they lose people the most. Mm. And when I say lose, meaning individuals are made aware early on of these options and they lose interest or they hit an obstacle and they give up. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is help the ones in the middle. If they've started, make sure they continue. And if they haven't started because of a, an obstacle, financial or otherwise, we want to help with that too. We don't want, our goal is to not, for some, a youngster to have an opportunity to want to participate on an adaptive sport team, but can't afford to get to practice. Mm-hmm. Or they want to. They are participating on a communal level, a community level, but they they're so good they could make it to the next level of like a regional team that would require travel to participate in games, mm-hmm. but they can't afford the travel because that is often self-sponsored. You know, the parents have to pay for that. Yeah. We want to help with that. So we want to help with the middle group where we recognize they could get lost, and we want to make sure they don't. 
I love that so much because that that right there is the key is that ongoing the consistency where there's so many times in life for what we're talking about right now but for many people you know it's it's kind of you can get started on something but it's the continuing and this ongoing support um the motivation the you know financial support of it if it needs to take place, the accountability, that's where you lose people, right? And so what a right. gift that the Kristen Saul Welder Foundation provides that to people. And so we're, we're going to make sure to put a link into our show notes for everyone. I'm going to ask you more about that uh, when we get to the closing, but I wanted to Go back for a moment uh, to, again, some of these defining values when you, it just struck me so powerfully what you were talking about, about your mom saying, we don't use no words. We don't come up with, we don't focus on the challenge. We focus on the solutions and how can you phrase that differently and all these different lessons based on her value of, of perseverance or resilience right now, right? What were some other um examples or stories of that? I mean, maybe we had spoken about some sports that you did that might apply in this situation, but you, you let me know what you think. Sure. Sure. So uh, funny enough, when, when my si- I have a sister four years old and I, my mom made a decision at a young age that although school was so important and school was going to fill our day, we were not going to just come home after school and do nothing. And not to say that there, you know, homework is involved in all that, but she recognized there were, there were periods of time that you're not just going to go out and play in the schoolyard. She wanted us very active in, in an activity and she was fairly flexible as to what that would be, but she started us off following her footsteps. We became swimmers and growing up in New York city, the, the ability where swimming pools were and teams that existed, there wasn't much in New York City. So she had done a bunch of research to say, where can I get my kids involved in a more structured swim t- program? We're not talking like free swim in the afternoon. This was structured workouts every day, competitions on weekends, things of that sort. And she read this article, uh, interestingly enough, right around the same time, and it was the early 70s in the New York Times. And it was about a swim team that existed in New York happened to be in Brooklyn. We lived in Brooklyn. So the, the location of it was ideal about 20 minutes away. And she was just fascinated. And the, you know, the purpose of the article was actually a very interesting slant to it. It was an African-American coach that had come out of the army. He himself was a swimmer and he chose to start a swim team in at the time would be called the ghetto of the area to help get kids off the streets because there was crime and there were issues and like this, almost like my mom's idea, this lack of structure outside of school that could cause, allow kids to potentially get in trouble, so to speak. Um, he's, he started the swim team and he literally grassroots wise recruited kids locally from that area in Brooklyn to be part of this team. And it was a 100% African-American team. So my mom reads the article, did not focus on the nuance of the team, simply called him up or emailed him, uh, emailed, there was no email then. I think he either phoned him or wrote him a letter. I forget what it was. This was early seventies. And they spoke on the phone and the coach said, I'm very open to having you join a team. You know, my, she, he, she explained her background. She explained how she wanted her kids involved in swimming. We did have a bit of an aptitude for it. And he said, absolutely. I will give you a trial run. 
And she was a bit taken aback by that. And she said, what do you mean a trial run? She goes, no, my kids will, like, if they're in it, they're in it. I will make sure of that. She was very persistent. You know, they will succeed in this space. <laughs> he says, no, that's not what I'm getting at. He said, we're an all African-American team. You're a Caucasian family. He said, I tried this once before, one time. It did not work. The Caucasian family could not cope with the nuances of it. Mm. I'm happy to have you do it, but know for both our sakes, we're going to try it for six months and we're going to have an honest discussion after that period, whether we think it's still positive for both all parties involved. My mom, again, literally, I don't even think she thought about it. She goes, okay, fine by me. Like it didn't matter to her. Yeah. We start joining a team. My sister actually started a year before me. I was a little bit young. I used to go to the practices every day and sit on the side and watch them swim. And then a year later, I began participating. What's interesting is I asked my mom after the fact, I learned that story at a much older age when I was able to appreciate the story. I did not know that going into it. Years later, I was made aware of that story. I asked if they ever had the discussion six months later, and they never did. The discussion never surfaced. We became part of the team like any other team member. We never had an issue of our participation nor being welcomed by the team. There was no issue. Mm -hmm. However, what was over the years, what I did learn, it was an incredible learning lesson for so many of us, my brothers and sisters who are on the team, as well as me. I was exposed starting in the mid seventies through many years. I was on that team 18 years. My sister was on 15 years. We were challenged with discrimination and reverse discrimination and um, just racism in general on many levels. And it was so, one, it was never an issue for my mom. And these were some teaching moments throughout those 18 years because it surfaced on a regular basis. And it was a teaching moment that my mom would use every time. If we were encountered by it, whether we were in encountering it in defense of my brothers and sisters on the team, or when it was directed at us being called reverse racists and things of that sort. My mom would literally say, we need to talk about this. Tell me what they said. How did that make you feel? Let's talk about that feeling. What did you think? Do you think that person has a point or doesn't have a point? And every moment was like that. And to again, always in hindsight, I had no idea the lessons it would teach me. I had no idea that it would make me the person I am today and I don't like using the word color blanks. I actually don't think that's the right word because everyone should see color. They need to see color. They need to, because that's how you learn. Being colorblind, I don't like that term at all because that almost, I, I don't think it's accurate. I was inherently taught to appreciate color and understand diversity and look at it as a positive. To this day, I am now that's 35 years ago. I am still friends with the core group of people that I spent the 18 years with. All but one is alive. We still stay in touch and we have a summer reunion every year. Awesome, that's amazing. You know, when you tell me any of these stories, I just so wish that I had the opportunity to meet your mother. She just sounds amazing, you know, just, and, and your father was the same, he was very involved or was it more her because of the swimming side? 
Um, he, she was more involved in the swimming part of it, but my dad as well was equally involved in the sense of he took us to practices as well. He drove us to the, the swim meets around the region. You know, we traveled all around the New York area, as well as even getting on planes and traveling to further locations. But it, what's funny with him is um, he himself formed a different friendship with the coach. And we're to this day still friends with the coach. He is still alive. Mm -hmm. Um and it's funny, his, his name is Coach. We never used his real name because that's, <laughs> that's, it was a matter of respect. You call yeah. him Coach. You mm -hmm. don't call him by his first name. But my dad had a relationship with him because Coach was a basketball advocate. And he just enjoyed basketball. It was sort of a side thing. He didn't really play it. He just enjoyed it. And because of my dad's influence and um, posture in the space, my dad did have connections and friendships with some NBA players, mm -hmm. Harlem Globetrotters, you know, local players, so to speak. And so the coach, my coach and my dad formed a relationship about basketball because my dad would take my coach to <laughs> Knicks games and Nets games to get him to sit on the court or sit, uh, sit courtside. And for my coach, that was an experience he would not have had unless he met my dad. I remember an, an engagement where dad took us, he was friendly with several of the former Harlem Globetrotters and we would go to their games often, not every game, but a lot of them. It was like a, a moment in time when my coach joined us because it was a dream of his to meet some of the Harlem Globetrotters. So my dad fulfilled that dream for him. Those are some of, so there was that relationship in the swimming arena, but it was a very different relationship and for different reasons. Oh, this is great. What amazing stories. You know, you know I, I want to make sure that we do... Um, give people the opportunity to find out how to connect with you, Jeff, as well as to, you know, give us the, the full foundation name, the website, anything like that, that you can share with, with sure. our listeners. Yeah. So the foundation, and I, I know you mentioned you'll, you'll include in some of the notes, it's welgerfoundation.org, pretty straightforward. So my last name, W-E-L-G-E-R, foundation.org. It has the full story of mom and dad, if you want to learn more about them and their, their romance and their medal winnings, and they mm -hmm. did win a lot of medals. Mm -hmm. um, if I'll share with you in a moment, Heather, you know my little anecdotal that I had to share with my nieces and nephews for, mm -hmm. for con uh, context. But also on the website, there's contact information. Mm -hmm. And when you see in the, there's a contact us button, we are also on social media, but in that contact us button, if you click to get an email address, it is to, directly to me. Mm -hmm. And there's a phone number there. That is my cell phone. And I say that because this is a very grassroots at the moment, but also it is a family run foundation. We're not this tremendous foundation that has lost sight of how it started and so forth. So that phone number is my cell phone and I'm welcome to take phone calls or text messages to learn more about it, to talk with me. Um, we're gonna be doing some outreach or some publicity, so to speak, coming around the Olympics coming up. Mm -hmm. And I share this one fact, if, if it's interesting to people, the last time the Summer Olympics, inclusive of the Paralympics, were in Tokyo. My parents were in them. Oh. And my parents won medals at them. So this year is a very uh, historical and poignant year for us and for the foundation because it, it, uh, it gives it like a footing. Mm. Again, I'll say it for context. The last time the games were there, my parents were competitors for the U.S. and they won gold medals. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us, continue, tell us a little bit more about the story that you were alluding to. 
Yeah. So um, I have nieces and nephews. I have five. They're basically of adult age. They're about 18 to 27 in ranges five. And one sister had five children. I don't have any. We're very close. Uh, and they knew my, they knew my parents. They luckily enough, all of them had the opportunity to know them while they were alive. And they were well aware of their aptitude, but very much like my sister and I, it was never a big deal. My parents' gold medals from the Olympics were in a closet in a box. They only came out if the kids asked to see them. They were not on display. There was never a arrogance about it because to my parents, it was part of their past and they didn't want myself and my sister nor my niece and nephew to think you have to live up to this expectation. You have to succeed in what you're going to do. It was, if you'd like to know about it, we'll tell you the stories. But if they didn't ask, the stories didn't surface. Mm -hmm. So very humble. So my, my nieces and nephews were well aware of it, but they sort of never knew the depth and scope. And as they got older, they did begin, begin to appreciate a little bit more, wow, grandma and grandpa were in these games that are like, like the Olympics and they're televised and they have medals. You mean like the ones that we see Michael Phelps wearing around his neck? And you know, my sister and I would say, yep, just like that. They stood on a box that said number one and they were photographed for the newspaper at the time. And yes, all of that. But they weren't understanding the impact my parents had. And this was more recent when we, when we formed the foundation. They asked me, Uncle Jeff, can you explain, compare to us, how good were grandma and grandpa in relation to something we may understand better? And it, it was a challenge. I said, yes, I could, like my mom, never say no. Yes, I'm going to do that. It took a little bit of time, but I was able to think through it. And I wanted them to understand how many medals which aligns with the impact my mom had. My mom was the bigger medal winner by the nature of her sport. You know, basketball, you either win it or you don't. So you get the one medal. My mom in swimming is individual events. So you have the opportunity to win more medals. So I explained to them that they know in their lifetime, the greatest Olympian of all time is an American, Michael Phelps, happens to be a swimmer, which I'm very proud of that a swimmer is known as the greatest medalist of all time. In any one single, now Michael has many, many medals. I'm not sure the final number. I think it's like 24 total medals that he has won. But at any one games and single contributing events, he's won five gold medals. At any one Olympics, he's won more than five. And those other ones are, are uh, uh, relays that he participated in. So at any one Olympics, he may have won nine or 10, but single events contributed solely to him. He's won five medals and that was in the Beijing Olympics. In 1960, in Rome, my mother won six individual gold medals. Oh my gosh. So I explained the context to them and I said, does that help? You are in awe of Michael Phelps. Do you now understand? <sighs> Did they get it? They got it, right? They got it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Like you got me, you got me. <laughs> it takes yeah. a moment. <laughs> thank you. Um, and thank you for sharing such, you know, it must be such a, a very interesting element of vulnerability to, to want so much to share um, you know, the, 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 the values, the story, the support for future generations here, but it's so close to you yeah. as well. So it's like sharing your life, your it family is. with people. 
And what, what starting the foundation did, and this is as much, it was part therapy for the family, you know, in, in, in coping with grief, we made a decision to form the foundation one month after my mom passed. Mm. I, I know the timing was very uh, uh, orchestrated in a way. It was, we needed to do something to deal with our grief. Um, but what's interesting is it really educated me that if we, and me in particular, really the driving force behind the foundation, if I don't keep their story alive, or if I don't get the notes out or the historical facts out, their story will be forgotten. Yeah. And that's not saying that's for anyone's fault. It's the reality of the situation. And even as we crafted their story, what was unfortunate, but reality, there's certain gaps that my sister and I don't know. And unfortunately, there's less than a handful of close friends of theirs that are still alive mm. that could possibly fill in the gaps. And some of them, you know, just by nature of when their relationship was and all that, they don't have it either. So what it, what I took away was I have an internal personal obligation to make sure their story is kept in the forefront as long as I can. And that hopefully it can be absorbed or interested, you know, interesting to and, and welcome by as many people as I can touch. And possibly if it works, have my nieces and nephew become historians to continue it when I'm, when I can't. Oh, that's amazing. Now that's up to them, you know, whether they're willing, able, capable, you know, they're young kids at the moment, you know, like I said, the oldest is 27, maybe not a kid, but they're going to make their own life choices. Right. So I'm going to do my part. No, no obligation, but I'm going to be around a little while, I hope. And I'm going to make sure I keep the story going and make it push it to the forefront as long as I can. And what's nice is where we really initiated this when we started the foundation, it was humbling of the outreach we received back from people who knew my parents or knew of my parents who were willing to help and participate and, and continue the story or further the story or mm. use other mechanisms to get that story out there. And that's inclusive of my parents. I was able to donate artifacts to the, uh, the Olympic Museum. It's the Olympic US and Paralympic Museum in Colorado Springs that just opened last year. First brick and mortar museum of that kind. Wow. We have artifacts there. My, my dad is in the Wheelchair Basketball Hall of Fame, which is in Naismith Hall in Springfield, Massachusetts. There are artifacts there. And again, part of those are more tangible things where I can continue their history simply by having artifacts donated to those two museums that will be on regular rotation in display cases. Uh -huh. So that's the more tangible way to do it. And then my job is to get the story out there and keep the story going, keep all the stories going. Keep all the stories going. And then every time that you support or inspire a, a young athlete through the foundation, you have created another ripple. Exactly. And that's the hope that that would be my greatest accomplishment, accomplishment to know mm -hmm. that that's what I accomplished, yeah. that others can say, because of the Krista Saul Welter Foundation, I'm a better athlete. I'm a better person because it's both sides of it. You right. know, I would not have been able to do what I'm doing, whatever that is, without that. I want to be on the receiving end of those comments. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't often, you know, push this for our listeners, but listeners, you can feel the, the, the power of this message. So I'm going to ask you each to, to share it. Share it with a friend, 
you know, post it if you want on social media. I would love to help Jeff get the message of his amazing parents and this incredible foundation out to more and more people. So I do encourage you to please share it. Um, Jeff, you have been an absolute pleasure as always. And I was, I was convinced you weren't going to make me cry and you did it anyway, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to all of you out there listening, I hope that you have enjoyed the show, that it has in some capacity moved you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you or hearing your comments on this show and future shows. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.